Hello, Yolanda here. Now, unfortunately, due to pandemic-related scheduling difficulties for the Chinese artists involved in Tan Dan's Buddha Passion, the LPO's UK premiere performance of this work, as discussed in this episode of LPO Offstage, has been postponed to the following season. Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that gets into the nitty gritty of what it's like to be a musician with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we're exploring what it's like to blend different musical cultures and styles and what musicians can learn from playing different music outside their orchestral world. Well, we're joined once again by trumpeter Anne McEnany and it's great to welcome violinist Veselin Gelef, also known as Vesco. Lovely to meet you, Vesco, and welcome back, Anne. Hi, Yolanda. Great to be here. Thank nice you. Nice to see you. So what do we mean when we talk about musical genre and what is the Western musical canon? What role does that play in the repertoire of the LPO? Well, the Western musical canon, I suppose, is exactly the well from which we draw all of our all of our repertoire, you know, starting from, from the Renaissance up until the 20th century and now the 21st century, of course. What is kind of commonly known as classical music in parenthesis. But of course, that is kind of a loaded term because nowadays we also talk about things like Indian classical music, which is completely different. And it, it's another world. As far as the Western classical canon is concerned, that is our everyday life in the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I want to get to know you as musicians personally, just for a moment. Myself as a saxophonist, I love to mix the genres of reggae, jazz and soul. And in my very beginning, it was kind of like, how dare you, you know, (laughs) water down either one of those, any of those genres. But outside of the LPO, Anne, is there a style of music that you play outside or are you strictly classical? Uh, Unfortunately, these days, I'm I'm strictly classical. I don't have a great deal of time to spare with all the sort of different roles I have. In the past I have though, courtesy really of Renga, which was an ensemble which we had in the LPO for quite a few years. Yes, I was going to ask you about your your time with that group. It's a kind of an offshoot group playing sort of music in, in other genres. Tell me about your experience with that. Oh, gosh, where do I begin? (laughs) It it was immense. It went on for a number of years. And the whole thing really was a small group of of the orchestra who were collaborating with other musicians who'd never been trained classically. So we worked with folk musicians Mm. and jazz musicians. One of the most exciting projects for me was when we worked with Indian Carnatic musicians. Ronan Guilfoyle is an Irish double bass player who'd gone over to India and studied tabla. And he then formed a school for jazz musicians in Dublin, teaching them tabla and writing music, which is fusion. I see. I, I, can I tell you a funny experience? Yes, actually, please. When, he, when we spent, because all of these projects, we would spend days in the company of these people, learning from them and writing pieces together or putting, well, putting pieces together, particularly with Ronan. He came to us in the week which was... The British Jazz Week. Yes. Or London Jazz London Week. London Jazz Festival, yeah. And, of course, they all culminated in a concert, these projects. Ronan had written things in, in strange metre, as you can imagine, because he was really into all the rhythms and things. And there's one piece which was written in 7-4. Of course, they put us on the spot and said, right, Scott Stroman, who was always in charge of these groups, 
would point to you and it was right your solo and I I remember standing there looking at an audience that I knew were used to jazz players really very very high quality jazz players and just praying that Scott wouldn't point to me and of course you know I was looking everywhere it's like the naughty kid at school avoiding the teacher's eyes all the time until he went right up to me and pointed straight at me and said right off you go and this was the piece in 7-4, and I remember starting this piece rather sort of quietly and low and gently, and until eventually I, I just everything just expanded. I got higher and lower. <laughs> wasn't sure where I was anywhere. That I couldn't understand the form. I was just enjoying myself. And at the very end, a guy afterwards, we were having a chat with him, and he came up to me and he said, well, love, you know, you're obviously not a jazzer, but you've got guts. Yes! That's high praise, I it tell was, you. Well, I'm not sure, but yeah, it was an experience. But actually, you said the important phrase there that you were enjoying yourself. Because at the end of the day, when you're going outside of genres and you're trying something new, even if it feels difficult or you're not quite sure, the main element is to enjoy yourself and the audience will too. Yeah, good. <laughs> And Vesco, what about you? What sort of music do you play outside of the orchestra? Initially, I was I was exposed to jazz actually quite early on, which was unusual uh, growing up in Bulgaria. But uh, family lore has it that uh, the the first music that I heard when I when my mom brought me back from the hospital was the Duke Ellington Orchestra, mm. uh, which my dad had been recording over the sixties and seventies, sort of surreptitiously from pirate <laughs> you know radio stations in Bulgaria. He would stay up all night and uh, you know record these real to real. Tapes of anyone from from Louis Armstrong to Count Basie and and Dave Brubeck and a lot of you know really classic jazz. So I think I might have heard jazz before I even knew what music was or or that anything else existed. And somehow that I think has stayed with me. The, the love for jazz has has definitely stayed with me since since then. I went to high school in Idlewild, California, and there was a wonderful jazz teacher there called Marshall Hawkins. I mean, it was a class unlike any other in in any other school I'd been to at that point, you know, growing up in Bulgaria, <laughs> where you could literally do anything you wanted to do. I wow. mean, uh, what 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 Anne was saying about sort of uh, letting your fear go and just standing up and playing, and to to sort of have that be encouraged and you know to a certain extent guided and and channeled into some kind of form, but mainly to enjoy yourself and to have the opportunity to express yourself in that in that way was something uh, really uh, special, liberating. You know, after that I, I moved to New York and of course being in New York is is like heaven for for anyone who who likes jazz or for that matter, any other style of music. Yes. I mean, you're surrounded by sounds from all over the world, 24 hours a day. I played in a few rock groups. I had a sort of a chamber orchestra hybrid jazz band, which which is still in existence today, called Absolute Ensemble. And we were all kind of similarly minded. Uh, we like to call ourselves musical omnivores. I like it. <laughs> so the, the whole the whole band was dedicated to the absolute erasure of any any boundaries between yes. between styles, between genres. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I of course I heard it a lot about Renga in, in London and that was also one of the bonuses for me for joining the London Philharmonic Orchestra at the time that there was going to be an opportunity to do something like that but unfortunately uh, I only caught the the very last season or two and I I think I, I did one concert at the Vortex Club in London but since then you know I've been 
slightly starved for oh. <laughs> for having having a bit of a bit of an outlet. Hopefully there'll be for, a resurgence. I mean, it does sound so liberating <laughs> yeah. and so so expanding. Yes, Anne. Having said that, Vesco, I believe I heard you playing jazz violin at the gala recently. Oh, that's yeah, that's a, a recent development. I, our timpanist Simon Carrington, who maybe some of you know, yeah. is also a quite an accomplished uh, jazz piano player now. And I think during lockdown, maybe he, he has found even added confidence to go out and perform. And he's put a band together. And uh, I think we're all av- available for, for your event. Ah, and, uh, there you go. <laughs> plug, plug, plug. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Do these other musical experiences influence your approach to your job at the LPO in a way? I mean, Vesco, you shared there, it was, called, uh, it was a drawing factor to get you into the orchestra. But now that you've had those experiences, do you approach your classical playing in a different way, Anne? Not across the board. Um, I, I don't think it's applicable, for example, to Tchaikovsky Symphony, but <laughs> we have sort of quite broad horizons, I suppose, musically. And over the years have been playing music by Ravi Shankar, actually, quite a lot. We played his symphony a few, some years back, I think it was 2012, yeah, maybe? Yeah, spot on, yeah. Um, and, and his daughter, Anushka, came and played the sitar. And some of the things that we had learnt with Renga were put to good use there. For example, he makes the orchestra sing some tabla rhythms, not just taka, taka, takadimi, takadimi, tadakenega, all that kind of stuff. It grows more intense and the, and the rhythm gets faster. That is sort of really helped by the fact that I, I we had done that, even as a small unit with Renga, with the composer Tandan. We did some music, played some music, water percussion music, which was quite interesting sounds, as you can imagine. It's quite extraordinary, this piece, where instruments are vibrated and then dipped in into water. So, of course, wow. the extraordinary sounds that come out of that. But I'm just remembering, we also did an amazing project with, with the full orchestra called All Rise with Winter Marsalis and the Lincoln Centre Jazz Band. And we went on tour with them. And that, oh, my word, that was astonishingly good fun. So that was the orchestra and a jazz band together. Yeah, yeah, combined forces but one of the things about um, All Rise was that the jazz band would do an encore and they would play the Sea Jam Blues. Were you involved in this, Vesco? Uh, no, before my time, Oh, I'm my word, you've missed yeah. out so much. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so every night they would do the Sea Jam Blues as an encore and eventually they would go off to a jazz club afterwards. We Always. all went with them, as you can imagine. You know, we had such a great time. And we'd chat to the players and we're talking to Winter one night and saying to him that actually some people in the orchestra can improvise. And he, he took this on board. The real peak of it all was the last concert that we did and Simon Carrington just started improvising on the timps. And Winton's face was a picture. I mean, he came up afterwards and said, I have never, ever heard anyone improvise on the timps. Oh, wow. Oh, I bet you wish he had a couple more concerts to do. (laughs) We wish we had a couple more concerts. It was brilliant. Vesco, were you involved with the Ravi Shankar Symphony with Anushka Shankar? I was, yeah. They did the uh, opera tours with uh, Sukanya, which was finished and, and orchestrated by David Murphy, who conducted the whole project. We had a quintet, I think it was, of Indian classical musicians playing in the middle of the orchestra, Mm. which presented many challenges 
some of which we met in terms of ensemble, in terms of being able to hear each other. And of course, these are people whose inner rhythm is so incredibly refined mm. and attuned to, to this very complicated music that the orchestra took some, some great effort to, uh, <laughs> to keep up with them. I remember the moments when, when sort of the orchestra stopped and, and there was a, a solo just, just for the Indian musicians. It was, it was absolutely transfixing. Whenever you start sort of mixing genres, and especially if we're talking about genres which rely heavily on on melodic lines on, and on improvisation, it's very difficult to do because we have 40, 50 string players. Mm. And, and our main job is to sound like each other. Our, our main job is to blend with each other so we create one sound, which, of course, if you're improvising, that is completely impossible. And I think with woodwind players and, and brass players and percussionists and whatnot, you have solo lines. So obviously, I think composers are often drawn more to experimenting more with, with them when they're trying to bring in a different influence into an uh, orchestral piece than perhaps with the strings. Now, I have done some extra research and and as much as I've enjoyed watching Vesco performing uh, his jazz and blues, uh, I've also seen that you went on tour with the LPO to India and I saw a a picture of you with your trumpet there in Mumbai with lots of students just enjoying uh, all the music that you do. And of course, we've done a podcast together speaking about the outreach of the LPO. What was it like going on tour to India? First playing, but also those wonderful outreach moments. It was uh, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I've always wanted to go to India, but to actually go and enjoy the musical culture as part of it rather than just an observer was fantastic and an an incredible opportunity. And as you mentioned, combined with that, because we tend to try and and tie things up, any, any kind of music that we play, with bringing it to other people who may not come in contact with it. So either young people or, or older ones, should it be in a community centre or a school? So whilst we were there, we went to Mumbai and Bangalore and Delhi. Yes. In those three places, we went along to schools and told the students there about our instruments and played them some pieces and worked with them they were so responsive. It was quite incredible. I don't know what it is about Indian children. Their, their faces just seem to light up. Yes. They just beam at you and there's just so much energy in them. Actually, I learned quite a lot as well by seeing this response. And, and it's so different to how the kids are in England. I mean, they get very excited, but in a different way. Very, very good. I'm sure you inspired a whole generation there. The the pictures are beautiful and you can see that glow (laughs) that you're talking about just beaming. And you too, to be honest, there's a lovely picture of you just literally beaming back at them. How can you not not beam back at that? (laughs) And uh, when you were referencing pieces, you were talking about Tandan and the experience you've had. Um, Vesco, how much are you looking forward to playing Tandan's Buddha Passion? That's uh, one of the most interesting projects, I think, of of the next season. And it's uh, especially interesting for me because I've never played Tandon's music before, Uh Uh, even though, of course, it has been around for so long. And I remember seeing uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which, of course, he wrote the music for and and Yo-Yo Ma was playing. And and I was completely mesmerized by, I mean, the film, of course, but, but also the music. And I know that he has done so much about bringing more you know, awareness of, of what, what would be, I, I suppose, Chinese classical music, which is a term that we don't hear very often yes. in the West. And also to write a passion, which is not a Christian passion. I mean, we're, we're used to playing, uh, you know, of course, Bach's 
the same Matthew passion and other composers. But this is a Buddha passion, so I'm I'm very curious to to see how similar it is to to those other pieces, and on the other hand, how how different it is. And I I think there's possibly also some some dancing involved in in that project. Uh-huh. Uh, so so it might be similar to Sukanya in a way. But again, I'm I'm really looking forward to discovering uh, all of that. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's uh, promoted for February March next year. And Anne, what are you looking forward to with this with this new passion? Obviously, you referred earlier to another piece of his work. It'd be interesting to see what colours he brings to it. Like I mentioned, the water percussion thing. I mean, there were signs there which were very, very new to me. And it's not so often that you get to play on your mouthpiece alone <laughs> on I was the trumpet to say, yeah, or what the oboes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, there, at one point there was like a little conversation between a trumpet mouthpiece and, and a, an oboe reed. And in <laughs> fact, actually, Alice, who's been on some of these podcasts, I sent her this little clip and said, listen to this, because she and I are very often before concerts. I don't think you'll have heard this, Vesca, because you're on the other side of of the the platform. But as we're waiting to go on for concerts, we'll have a conversation with me and my mouthpiece and her and her radio. (laughs) (laughs) All this kind of stuff. Is that inspired by Tendon? And it's just like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't. It wasn't inspired by Tendon. It was just, when I I heard it, I said, oh my goodness, Alice, listen to this. This could be us. (laughs) So well, well, let's we'll see if there's see. anything like that coming up next I ca- time. I yeah. can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> it's been so lovely to hear the bringing together of cultures and the different colours that have been created when genres are brought together. Is there anything that you've learnt from a piece like that or a different composition that you weren't expecting that kind of really influenced how you approach music and approach your instrument now, Vesco? The main thing I, I would say I've learned is that... Uh, fusion of that sort is very difficult to pull off, mostly because the words are are so far apart that to get classically trained musicians, and as I said before, especially string players, uh, because I I find that on on average, a brass player, for example, would, everyone would have played jazz in some sort of, or or, or shape somewhere in their lives. But for string players, uh, for most of us, that is a completely kind of, you know, foreign land, which we may enjoy and like to listen to. But if you were put on the spot and and asked to participate, it's kind of a freeze moment. (laughs) (laughs) I think Winter Marsalis is a a great example. I mean, he's one of the very few, I, I think, composers, performers who manages to pull it off so successfully. But even in, in terms of performers, I think there's very few who can bestride both worlds of, of classical and jazz. And and what's your perspective then of this bringing together of genres? Is it something that should be done and should be explored? Or is it something that, you know, OK, every once in a while, but let's not, let's not overdo it? Well, a mixture of both, really, because uh, it's something that you probably will have gleaned that I quite enjoy doing. I think there's a place for it, but I don't think it should be the core rep. I think it should be something which you can take the time to enjoy and to work at it and come to a greater understanding of of what other people are doing and how you can incorporate that in your, your own music making. It also takes away the fear element of the unknown. We're always slightly sort of wary of the unknown. If you plunge in, then you can bring so much more to your own sort of armory of playing. 
I think also it does a lot to promote audiences experiencing, you know, different types of music. I mean, a concert between LPO and Winter Marsalis will bring, I, I assume, a lot of classical people to become interested in jazz and a lot of jazz audience to come and say, oh, this symphony orchestra thing is pretty cool. I'm going to come check out another concert. Yes, good point, good point. <laughs> and of course, the fearlessness that Annie's talking is, is absolutely right. And And I think... It's important to remember that classical music also was not always written down and it was not always so heavily annotated. And in the beginning was very much improvisatory. I mean, any self-respecting Baroque composer would, would have been able to sit down and improvise on their respective instrument. Playing cadences in in the classical period was always an, an opportunity to improvise, and yeah, we I mean we have lost that as with the advent I think of, of romantic music and late romantic music when the sort of the composer became the tyrant of, of the whole enterprise, and often in in a piece by Mahler or any other late romantic composer you have so much information in a single bar that that obviously any attempt at personal involvement or improvisation so to speak is practically impossible. I mean, you, you're doing your utmost just to do what the composer has asked you to do. <laughs> There's no space. And if you're lucky, you can, you can pull it off. <laughs> well, that does lead me to my next question, because obviously coming from a jazz background, but actually all of my music is improvised. I do find it so interesting, uh, the gulf between those that read notation maybe in orchestral uh, situations and never improvise. And when you say improvise, the blood drains from their faces (laughs) (laughs) to somebody that only improvises and puts some sheet music in front of them. They're like, no, can't do this. This makes no sense to me. Do you think that for any musician, there should be an element of both in their lives? Or is it okay just to be uh, a notation reader and just to be an improvisatory player? Anne? I think for some people, they will never want to move out of the comfort zone, and that's absolutely fine. But I I think for the most part that musicians are quite free spirits and always want to develop and learn. I think everyone has the ability to improvise. I think on a different scale, of course, we improvise in the orchestra all the time. Mm. I mean, with with any any piece of music, unless it's by Mahler. (laughs) (laughs) No, just joking. But you make so many choices at any given moment, choice about articulation, about dynamics. I mean, all, all these things which cannot be controlled by the conductor alone. Each one of us makes these choices and that is essentially improvised. I mean, you're not choosing perhaps the pitches or, or the rhythm, but you can play around with so many other elements in the music that unconsciously we are we are improvising all the time. And Anne, could you tell us a bit more about the community and education projects that you've worked on with people from different musical backgrounds to you? And how do you approach this and almost be open to learning from them? Well, I suppose any of the education projects that I have done have really been with younger people. There were times in the past when we go into community centres and work with older people there or in the disability centres. But generally, these people don't have any sort of uh, musical training. There was one wonderful Jamaican lady many years ago, I think she was 95, who unfortunately is no longer with us, who kept teaching us all these old songs. Oh, lovely. The folk songs. Oh, my heart melted every time we saw her. And she would always recite her name and her age and, and then she'd go into these songs. And so we started improvising and building up music around these songs so that eventually the whole room would be taking part. That is the power of music, isn't it? That Um, really, really is. Yeah, yeah, certainly is. And, you know, 
Vesco, we heard earlier about Anne's experiences in Renga and how sort of the the musicians themselves grew by being exposed to different cultures. Do you think it's something that every musician should do just to have perspective of what's outside of what they normally play? You might not even realise what it what it gives you at the time, but any exposure to something outside the, the normal repertoire that you play, I think, can be very beneficial in, in the long term, just keeping your, your mind open. And the music that we play, even our core repertoire, is tremendously influenced by other styles of music. I mean, speaking about folk music, I mean, that was what classical music started with. You go through any composer from Mozart through Beethoven, I mean, folk dances, you go through Brahms, Dvorak, then Bartok in the 20th century. All of these influences, uh, Enescu, which we, we just played in the uh, in Bucharest, we played an arrangement of Enescu's third violin sonata, uh, for violin and orchestra, it's originally for violin and piano. And that is a piece that is actually pure folk music. Of course, it's through the prism of a very sophisticated European French trained composer, but it's a very strange mixture in a way because it's extremely carefully notated. Again, every bar has, has many instructions, but the final result is supposed to sound like it's completely improvised. Some of the Renga projects, as I mentioned, were involved with folk music. One with Chris Wood, there was not one piece of music for the whole concert. So we spent these days learning things orally. And what was even more of a step for some of us, if not all of us, was that the very first piece in the programme was sung. Wow. Um, And it was, I want one man to mow me down a meadow. And so he started and and then it would gradually build and then we would harmonise, you know, just working it out in your head. Um, So we learnt so much from that about listening and and actually sort of orally picking up what these melodies were and using your ear, which I know obviously we do a great deal in the orchestra regarding tuning and listening to each other and trying to play the same way. But to take it a step further and... I suppose in many ways, take it a step back. Yes. As Vesco was talking about the folk music, yeah, um, w- w- was was really taking us back to our roots in many ways. Now, I want to go back to your personal experiences. You shared so well about the, the genres that you've played in outside of your everyday work. Um, Vesco, how has your jazz and blues upbringing and playing influenced the player that you are today in the LPO? I find there's a very strong connection, of course, between jazz and Baroque music, because in Baroque, very often you have very limited notation and every instrument is more or less free to improvise around the harmonic structure, which is exactly what, of course, jazz musicians do. I feel comfortable in Baroque to use kind of the the freedom that I've learned from jazz and to be able to, of, of course, it's a, it's a different style altogether, but the concept of, of sort of connecting notes and playing around with them a little bit and, and working through a harmonic structure with, with melodic invention is exactly the same. And, and how about you? All of those experiences that you've shared with us today, how has it sort of influenced, number one, the player that you are today, but also the teacher that you are today too? I think that certainly everybody is going to take all the influences and with which they've come in contact and to make them into the musician they are. And it gives you, I suppose, much more of a skill base so that you can expand on things. And, and then when you get something unusual presented to you, it's easier to deal with it because you have something way back in there that um, you've had in the past, which will, will help you with it. As far as teaching is concerned, yeah, I mean, 
the repertoire that students have to deal with now, because they not just solo repertoire, but they have all kinds of contemporary ensembles. And because the second years will have to learn a blues scale, I'll say, OK, well, you've learned the blues scale. Now quickly just play me a little blues. And they look at me in shock horror. <laughs> they get used to it eventually because I will keep insisting they do it. Nice. And they come back and eventually, yeah, they, they will produce something and, and not just look at me as if I'm mad. We're learning every day still anyway. And, you know, you sit next to musicians and how they do things will be different to how you yeah. would do them. And you, and you take it all on board. So it, it, you're constantly learning. I think a lot of it is, is subconscious. It sort of stays in the back of your head somewhere. And then you might even use a skill that you've learned somewhere else w- without realizing it. Mm. And I think especially the connection with jazz is, is in a way improvisation is kind of composing on the spot. So improvisation is, is a more subconscious process in a way than what we do. Because we're so concerned with with consciously reading what we're supposed to be doing and getting the instructions right, that if you if you can transcend that and take it a step further and, and sort of use your subconscious to create something above the notation, that's the idea, isn't it? That's what we're in for. <laughs> Very much so. Thank you so much, Vesco and Anne. It's been so enlightening to speak to you and what fantastic projects you've been a part of. Thank you for sharing. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Yolanda. (laughs) Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Anne McEnany and Vesco Gelev for their insights into what it's like to play many musical styles and experience different musical cultures from the perspective of an orchestral musician in the UK. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffStagePod and let me know what you've enjoyed about these podcasts and also what you'd like to hear. Thank you for listening and do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage where we'll be finding out what it's like to write for an orchestra like the LPO and what the process is behind commissioning a new work, what works and what doesn't. See you then. See you then.